So Philippians chapter 4 is where we are, and to kind of give a little bit of background, Paul, who wrote this letter to the church of Philippi, is sitting in jail in Rome. And as we find out later, like he eventually becomes a martyr for the faith and is executed. Knowing that, he is writing to the church at Philippi. And if you want a one-word overarching theme to this book, it's the word joy. There was a special relationship that Paul had with this church. Interestingly, I believe there's 50-some verses in the book. Jesus is referred to by name 104 times. There is a direct correlation with the joy that was in this church and the Jesus that they loved and served. And so we're going to jump into chapter 4 here. Um, And, of course, when this was initially written, there weren't any chapters and verses. It was just a big, long letter. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, now, just rule of thumb, any time you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself what the therefore is there for. Right? So, like, there was something that was discussed prior to verse 1. Because you you have this whole big, long conversation. And then he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. But then here we get into it right here. So, So here you have this great book. Talks all about joy and Jesus and all this wonderful stuff and everything good God was doing in this fantastic church in Philippi. And then Paul says this, I beseech you. Now, now that word beseech is the word beg. Like I'm going to go alongside of you and really try to change your mind. I'm strongly encouraging you. And then he refers to two women in the church. One's name was Eodius. So it says, I beseech Eodius and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. A country preacher called these two women odious and soon touchy. It's not far from reality. Odious and soon touchy. And so what Paul is saying to these two women, he said, he said, here's my instruction for you. Be of the same mind in the Lord. You notice what's missing here? is what the argument was. Paul does not even address the issue. You know why? Because the issue was not the issue. So whatever it was that they were disagreeing with that was causing discord, Paul saw it for what it was. And that was a potentially divisive issue in this beautiful church that was full of joy. I know this, I read this, there is no heavier load than a chip on your shoulder. And you can kind of get something in your craw or a burr under your saddle or a chip on your shoulder and that's all you think about all the time and it becomes a greater issue than it had to become. It's probably best that we don't know what the dispute is because think about this, if we knew what the dispute is, that's what we would focus on. And we would make some kind of rule, we'd make some kind of law, we'd legislate something with it, 
and say, you can't wear this or you can't do this because that was a problem in the church of Philippi. And we know he doesn't even address what the issue is. He said, the issue doesn't matter. You need to be of the same mind in the Lord. I read this this week in World War I when war was declared, the uh, war ministry in London sent a coded secret message to outposts in the very remote parts of Africa. And the coded message said this, war has been declared, arrest all enemy aliens in your district. Soon after this, the war ministry received a secret coded message back, and it said this, we have arrested 10 Germans, 6 Belgians, 4 Frenchmen, 2 Italians, 3 Austrians, and an American. Please tell us immediately who we're at war with. <laughs> so, so it's like, we, okay, we, we arrested everybody. We got Now, which one should we keep? In, anyway. So what or who we think the issue is may not even be the issue. But we make the issue the issue. And, and, and what Paul is saying here is whatever the problem is, is, listen to me, irrelevant. No matter how right you think you are, is it worth your marriage? No matter how right you think it, you are about something, is it worth discord in the church? No matter how right you think, so here's what Paul's solution is. What Paul's solution is then, both of you just get the mind of Christ. Leave behind your own opinions and your own attitudes and just, just set the issue aside. How about if we both just take on the mind of Christ? A.W. Tozer said this, and it is very applicable to a church like ours. Some misguided Christian leaders feel that they must preserve harmony at any cost. So they do everything possible to reduce friction. They should remember that there is no friction in a machine that has been shut down for the night. Turn off the power, and you will have no problem with moving parts. Also remember that there is a human society where there is no difference of opinion. It's called the cemetery. The dead have no differences of opinion. What then is the conclusion of the matter? A.W. Tozer said this, not Eric. That problems are the price of progress. That friction is the concomitant, I had to look it up too, of motion. It's a natural result of motion. That a live and expanding church will have a certain quota of difficulties as a result of its life and activity. Then check this out. He says this, a spirit-filled church will invite the anger of the enemy. Anytime you're doing something for the Lord, a little discord can creep in. And Paul is saying, (laughs) I don't care what the issue is. I'm not even addressing the issue. I'm telling you both, ladies, take on the mind of Christ. Whatever, whatever that is. So So then it begs the question, what is the mind of Christ? Like, what are we talking about here? So if we're all supposed to take the mind of Christ, and, and, and just jot a couple things down here if you don't mind. I'm going to give you two other verses of Scripture in, in Philippians that, that refer to the mind of Christ. And that is chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 2. 127 and 2, 2. 
And then you have the mind of Christ clearly outlined in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Now, check this out. So Paul says, now, here's the the beautiful thing that Paul did. You've got chapter 2. He tells everybody what the mind of Christ is. And then in chapter 4, he tells these two ladies, Odious and Suntouchy, he says, I want you to take on the mind of Christ that I just explained to you back in chapter 2. So what is the mind of Christ? Here's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, that just spells it out for us, doesn't it? I mean, how much more obvious can you get? Here is the mind of Christ, Paul is saying, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So he was was God, but here's what he did. He made himself of no reputation. That word has the eyes, it's a single Greek word, what we have translated, no reputation. It means to empty yourself of yourself. It's like Paul saying, we're so full of ourself that we're not taking on the mind of Christ. The first thing that Christ did, the mind of Christ, was he emptied himself of himself. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. That literally means to be made low, to bow down. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I I don't know a concise definition for what the mind of Christ is, but it looks an awful lot like humility. The son of God. So odious and soon touchy. Take on the mind of Christ. Swallow a little bit of yourself and take on the mind of Christ. Become humble and serve. And that's just verse 2. Verse 3, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women, those two we just talked about in verse 2, which labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and with my other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Just like a little reminder, like we're all in this together, like we're all part of the family of God, we're all going to go to heaven, get used to each other, okay? We're going to all, so, so we are in The Lamb's Book of Life, like we are, as followers of Christ, we are all in this together. And then in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Don't miss this. That command to rejoice occurs in the middle of this conversation about two quarreling Christians. Now, here's, here's a little grammar ease. So the word rejoice here is what is called the, the active imperative voice. And what the active imperative tells us is that it is a command, a biblical imperative, that we are always to be continually working on. Because we have Jesus Christ in our life, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It is a command that as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, that there is no room for not rejoicing. 
So we're always supposed to be in a state of rejoicing. Now, we're, now it, it's not a matter of you acting like a fool and bouncing off the walls all the time. That's not the joy that we're talking about. But we are always supposed to be rejoicing. We always have a reason to be rejoicing. And then he backs it up and he says, and again, I say, in case you didn't get the first time, rejoice. Now, also remember that Paul is writing this from prison. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he indicates the fact that he believes he's going to become a martyr. So he feels like this is the end of his life. He writes this, and he's telling them to rejoice. And he has a little bit of, like, um, credibility to what he's saying because he's in prison. And what he reminds us of, oh, wait a second. In verse 2, it says, I want you to have the same mind in the Lord. And then here he says to rejoice in the Lord. So we have some common ground whereby we can rejoice. And the key to the Christian's joy, he's telling us here, is its source, and that is Jesus. So the key to the Christian's joy is not your circumstances, it's Jesus. If Christ is in me and I am in him, then that relationship is not a sometimes experience. It's an all-the-time experience. And if Jesus is the reason for our joy, then we can always have the joy lived out in our life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this about this verse. He said, people who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or take offense. Now catch this, all right? Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles that naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we. Now there's perspective for you. So how's your little tiff doing? How's your little little argument coming along? Where are we living? Where is, where is the benefit of this relationship of Jesus and how is it playing out in your life? Joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. That's a powerful statement. Because here's the thing, the joy of the Lord is a thermostat, not a thermometer. And I've been so scared I'm going to get this backwards. Because thermometer and thermostat are really close in the way that they look. But a thermometer registers conditions. A thermostat controls them. Right? So I go over here to the thermostat and I look and see what the temperature is. All that. So the, the thermometer built into that tells me what the temperature is in this room. But then I can hit these little buttons that go up or down, and now the thermostat kicks in and changes the temperature of the room. Happiness is related to the thermometer. If your hap is good, you're happy. If your hap is bad, you're sad. Happiness goes up and down with your circumstances, just like a thermometer. But joy in the Lord is a thermostat because Jesus can control your response to circumstances. One of the most convicting passages of Scripture about the joy of the Lord 
is in Acts chapter 5. Peter and some of the apostles were just scourged, just whipped and punished for their faith. And as they left the scourging, the Bible says this in Acts 5.41, that they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's Jesus in you. That's making the difference. So let me give you just a few characteristics of having joy in Jesus. The first thing is this, that joy in Jesus is a fruit of the Spirit. And we don't have a lot of time to get into all of this. Earlier this year, we did a whole series on the fruit of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, the Spirit that indwells you when you enjoy that relationship with Him, then we have some naturally produced fruit then, supernaturally produced fruit. Right, The first one that we're familiar with is love, and then the next one is joy, and then peace. So we have this naturally recurring fruit because of the relationship that we are enjoying. When we give him the reins, say, God, it's on you. I'm just kind of along for the ride here. When we walk in the Spirit, years ago, Melissa and I are going on a lot of years. Like, I think we just celebrated 28. And so, of course, we dated a little bit before then. So 28 in a few weeks. <laughs> now, you know me better than that. I'm a really slow decision maker. So it's like, so we've been going on dates for like 30-some years, right? And, and we were married a little bit of time, and we got in the car together. And I wanted to surprise her where we were going. And so she had no idea where we were going. And I fully expected her to be like, so, where are we going? And I was going to go, I'm not going to tell you. But she never asked. <laughs> so at halfway on to a ride, I said, I said honey, don't you want to know where we're going? She goes, doesn't matter. I just am with you and I enjoy that. That's what kind of man I am. Now you realize why we've been so happily married for all this time. No, yeah, my humility just oozes. Yeah, what was that verse? Um, <laughs> no, what I'm saying is like she was happy just being with me. The destination was going to be great. We we're going to have a great meal and have a good time. But we just like being together. So it's kind of become this thing with our relationship that we just like to be together. And the destination is great, and what we're going to do, that's going to be a lot of fun, no doubt about it. But the value in our relationship is being together. And when you're walking in the Spirit, it's not about what fun stuff happens to you or what difficult stuff you're going through. You're getting to enjoy life with Jesus. And if you let him have the reins and you're not so worried about controlling everything about your life, you can relax and just enjoy, joy, life in Jesus. Because as you're walking with the Holy Spirit and letting him work things out, I'm not saying that we are like, like useless in this relationship. I'm just saying that we spend too much time inputting our incredible wisdom into what God is trying to do in our life and trying to direct him to answer our specific prayers about the life that we think that we need to have. 
when maybe we just need to give the reins up a little bit and say, God, you know a lot better than I do. I don't know what that looks like for you. But I know for me, it's just a realization that I can't control my life's circumstances. I can control me and I can, I can put forth my best effort. But I can't control everything about my life. And I have to be okay with that. But I think that we waste a lot of energy trying to get other people to conform to how we want to do things. And we waste a lot of energy trying to get that spouse or those kids or, all right, kids ought to do what you say, forget that. But we try and get people to accommodate us and how we see life rather than just letting God work in their life and God work in my life. Come on, Eodius, come on, Syntyche, just be of the same mind of the Lord. And if we humble ourselves and empty ourselves of ourselves and bring ourselves low and just decide to be humble and serve other people, it's going gonna, it's gonna to remove a lot. If you would just serve your wife instead of demanding that she submit to you, you'd have a much better relationship. Except me, I don't have to do that. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And then joy in Jesus is also a result of obedience. So when we live an obedient life, we can fully expect to enjoy joy. So we love this verse that, that Christ gives us in John chapter 15, verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. But okay, wait, 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 wait. What things did he just speak to us? <laughs> What was verses 1 through 10, right? These things have I spoken unto you. All right, so Jesus, what did you just speak unto us? Well, the beginning of chapter 15, he talks about the fact that he's the vine, we're the branches, we have to abide in him. Because we can't do anything without the branch. We, we can't, the, the, the vine, we can't do, we can't bear any fruit. And then he talked about us, if we really love him, that we'll keep his commandments. And so this life of obedience is what brings joy. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Like when your kid has done something and you don't even know what it is yet, but you feel like something's changed. Have you ever been there? Like you don't know what it is, but something ain't right. It affects the relationship Because there has been an act of disobedience. You feel it. That's what I'm talking about. You don't enjoy the joy of the Lord because we're not living in obedience to him. And if there's something that God has been communicating to you in your life, don't expect to have a beautiful, joyful, spirit-filled Christian life if we're living in disobedience, and we know it. It is a fruit of the Spirit. That joy is a result of obedience, and it outweighs our sufferings. There is something about the joy that is promised to us that makes the sufferings that we go through manageable. Jesus gave thanks For the bread at Passover, I alluded to this earlier. The word thanks 
in the Greek is where we get the word Eucharist. It's Eucharisteo. It's the word thanksgiving. But I want you to notice something here. That couched in the word Eucharisteo is the word charist. Do you see it? The word charis. That's the, also the word for grace. And so in the thanksgiving that Jesus gave for the bread that he was breaking and the, rep, and the bread that he broke represented his broken body and the horror that he was about to endure in the next 24 hours. As he gives thanksgiving, he is accepting the grace that goes along with that. And also in the word Eucharisto, do you see the word kara? It is the word for joy. And there is something with the word thanksgiving. When we give thanksgiving to God, we are thanking him. And there's a grace filling that takes place. And then joy is a result. Jesus' thanks was not based on his present circumstances. Catch this. He was about to endure the worst horror imaginable. He felt thankful in that moment in the upper room with his disciples, and he gave thanks. He felt thankful to the Father for what was coming because of the cross. That's you and me. Hebrews chapter 12, 2. Take a look at this. This will wrap it up together for us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the what? Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I don't know what you're going through this morning. But if you believe that God has your best interest at heart, and if you believe that he will work all things together for good, can that give you some joy right now? Even though you're not feeling it? If you believe that on the other end of this, that's the joy that is set before you, can you accept some of that grace that comes with thanksgiving right now? Can you accept some of that joy that comes with thanksgiving right now and be grateful for what God is going to be doing in your life with this stuff that you're going through? That's heavy stuff. But that's the joy in Jesus because it outweighs our suffering. And we got just a few more verses here and we'll wrap up this, this passage. Verse 5 says this, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Just very quickly, the word moderation here has a lot of different interpretations. It's probably different in your Bible. Let me just say, what. Uh, so it can mean anything from gentleness to reasonableness to suitability to fairness. I like the words even-tempered. Don't be too excitable, right? Just kind of even-tempered. And then it says this, the Lord is at hand. Your Bible might say the Lord is near. So we don't know, to be honest with you, after studying this for many hours this week, I'm no further ahead. It could either mean chronological, like his return is imminent, like he's, he's coming soon, or it could mean more metaphorical, like he's near you, he's close to you. I'm good with either one. I'm not splitting hairs over it, but those are different ways to interpret that. 
And then here we'll take a look at verse 6. Be careful. Now, again, that's a beautiful King James word, but your Bible might say, don't be anxious. Don't be troubled. Be careful for nothing. Not one thing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let's stop there. There's a difference between prayer and supplication. Prayer is like just general conversation with God. So like you're going to work and you're just saying, God, you know, you know where I'm heading right now and you know the situations. I'm just asking for your help. I would really like to be just a beautiful example of what life of a believer can look like. And you're just having this general conversation with God about life. And then supplication is like a specific request. You're coming to God with a, with a request, like, like a subject going before a king, if you will, or a, or a son going before the daddy with a specific request. But I want, you to, I want you to notice this, right? He says prayer and thanksgiving, and then what does he say? With what? With thanksgiving, right? That Eucharisteo, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now, here's what's, here's what's incredible. Paul gives us here in verse 6 the antidote for worry and anxiety. And that is prayer. And what I love here is he says, don't be anxious about anything, like nothing, not one thing. And then he says, but in everything. Let me just say this. If it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. If it's occupying your mind, if it's something that keeps you awake at night, if it's something that you worry about, it's, it's big enough to pray about. And then Paul says to add to our prayers thanksgiving. And this is, this is, this is big stuff right here. He said, when you go to the Lord and you are going to make a specific request and you're going, to, you're going to ask him for something in your life, make sure that you do it with thanksgiving. Why? Because it's a good check and balance. We're not going to Lord just saying, give me, give me, give me. It is, God, I know you've been way good to me. There's like this check and balance. God, we are coming to you with thanksgiving, with gratitude, knowing the grace that you've already shown us and the joy that we already feel and the goodness that you've already shown. Thanksgiving implies that the grateful person is well aware that God will work all things together for their good and that they're living a life of obedience and God's goodness is gonna rule the day. So if I am truly believing that God's goodness will rule the day and that God has my best interest at heart, I can be thankful for whatever it is that God does and whatever God has already done. And so when I bring requests to him, I can do it with thanksgiving because I know He's got it handled. I believe this. I believe my requests move God's heart. He's still God. But if my kids came to me and with a heart of gratitude made a request, I would do what I could to fulfill that request. I mean, wouldn't you? Like, like God is not up in heaven with a rod ready to smack you on the hand. God is a loving father, and he only wants what's best for you. Now, what's best for you may not be what you want for you. But if we come to him with a heart of gratitude, 
mixed with our request, it just changes the conversation. I mean, how can we not be thankful when we owe God everything? And then he wraps up this portion of the passage in verse 7, and the peace of God, (laughs) which passes all the understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Like the word and there is like a continuing thought. Like in other words, you have that peace because you've given everything over to the Lord. And you trust him and you believe that he wants what's best for you. Again, I don't pretend to know what you're going through. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know that I could handle what many of you are carrying. Health concerns, marital issues, children, financial struggles. But joy is bigger than our suffering. And I believe this, that God has the ability to convince us that on the other end of all of this is going to be something that we can be grateful for. Say, Eric, I don't, I don't really see it, and maybe I don't even believe it. I get it, but do you believe God? Can you do that right now? Like, we can't figure out what it's going to look like. And let me just be honest with you. There are some things that I've been struggling with for 10 years. And I still haven't figured out how something good is going to happen, right? So I'm with you there. Like what happened back then, I, I here I am 10 years later, and I'm still going, God, I still don't see it. It still doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I know you're God, but I, don't, I ain't buying it yet. But I'll tell you what, for 10 years, I've trusted the fact that he does know what's best. And that he does have my best interest at heart. And here's the, I may die before I find out. And when I get to heaven, I'll be like, it didn't matter anyway. Right? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God all kinds of questions. Hey, you might. I don't know. I think you're just going to be going. (laughs) Yeah, I got nothing. He's God. Right? Let's pray. Father, we do love you and we just trust you. And we come to you with a heart of thanksgiving. And that joy that we can experience, that, that love of life, that, that fruit of the Spirit. We want that. And we want to, to live a life that just trusts you. And, and from the innermost being that we have, we want you to have the reign in our life. Take us where you want to take us. And do what you want to do. Help us to just be along for the ride and enjoy the relationship. And if there are concerns and if there are burdens that we, that, we, that we bear, help us to share them with you with a heart of gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.